Welcome to Another World Audiobooks. If you're confused as to why there's an episode today, it's because we have the generosity of Nikki Wagner to thank for a very special bonus full week of content here as we go through The Secret Garden. If you didn't listen to Sunday's episode, I had uh, an interview with Nikki and uh, there was the first couple chapters of the book. So go back, listen to that and uh, get all caught up on what's going on. If you're all confused and wondering where Emma went, never fear, she will be back regularly scheduled uh, episode on this coming Sunday. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, all this crazy bonus content is like Christmas came early. Without further ado, I give you the next chapters of The Secret Garden, narrated by special guest narrator, Nikki Wagner. Chapter 17, A Tantrum. She had got up very early in the morning and had worked hard in the garden and she was tired and sleepy. So as soon as Martha had brought her supper and she had eaten it, she was glad to go to bed. As she laid her head on the pillow, she murmured to herself, I'll go out before breakfast and work with the chicken and then afterward, I believe, I'll go to see him. She thought it was the middle of the night when she was awakened by such dreadful sounds that she jumped out of bed in an instant. What was it? What was it? The next minute she felt quite sure she knew. Doors were opened and shut and there were hurrying feet in the corridors and someone was crying and screaming at the same time, screaming and crying in a horrible way. It's Colin she said. He's having one of those tantrums the nurse called hysterics. How awful it sounds! As she listened to the sobbing screams, she did not wonder that people were so frightened that they gave him his own way in everything rather than hear them. She put her hands over her ears and felt sick and shivering. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, she kept saying. I can't bear it. Once she wondered if he would stop if she dared go to him, and then she remembered how he had driven her out of the room, and thought that perhaps the sight of her might make him worse. Even when she pressed her hands more tightly over her ears, she could not keep the awful sounds out. She hated them so, and was so terrified by them, that suddenly they began to make her angry, and she felt as if she should like to fly into a tantrum herself, and frightened him as he was frightening her. She was not used to anyone's tempers but her own. She took her hands from her ears, and sprang up, and stamped her foot. He ought to be stopped! Somebody ought to make him stop! "'Somebody ought to beat him!' she cried out. Just then she heard feet almost running down the corridor, and her door opened and the nurse came in. She was not laughing now by any means. She even looked rather pale. "'He's worked himself into hysterics!' she said in a great hurry. "'He'll do himself harm. No one can do anything with him. You come and try, like a good child. He likes you!' "'He turned me out of the room this morning,' said Mary, stabbing her foot with excitement. The stab rather pleased the nurse. The truth was that she had been afraid she might find Mary crying and hiding her head under her bedclothes. "'That's right,' she said. 
You're in the right humour. You go and scold him. Give him something new to think of. Do go, child, as quick as ever you can. It was not until afterward that Mary realised that the thing had been funny as well as dreadful. That it was funny that all the grown-up people were so frightened that they came to a little girl, just because they guessed she was almost as bad as Colin himself. She flew along the corridor, and the nearer she got to the screams, the higher her temper mounted. She felt quite wicked by the time she reached the door. She slapped it open with her hand and ran across the room to the four-poster bed. You stop! she almost shouted. You stop! I hate you! Everybody hates you! I wish everybody would run out of the house and let you scream yourself to death! You will scream yourself to death in a minute, and I wish you would. A nice, sympathetic child can neither have thought nor said such things, but it just happened that the shock of hearing them was the best possible thing for this hysterical boy, whom no one had ever dared to restrain or contradict. He had been lying on his face, beating his pillow with his hands, and he actually almost jumped around. He turned so quickly at the sound of the furious little voice. His face looked dreadful, white and red and swollen, and he was gasping and choking. But savage little Mary did not care an atom. If you scream another scream, she said, I'll scream too. And I can scream louder than you can, and I'll frighten you. I'll frighten you! He actually had stopped screaming because she had startled him so. The scream which had been coming almost choked him. The tears were streaming down his face and he shook all over. I can't stop, he gasped and sobbed. I can't. I can't. You can, shouted Mary. Half that ails you is hysterics and temper. Just hysterics. Hysterics. Hysterics and she stopped each time she said it. I've felt the lump. I've felt it, choked out Colin. I knew I should. I shall have a hunch on my back, and then I shall die. And he began to writhe again, and turned on his face, and sobbed and wailed, but he didn't scream. You didn't feel a lump, contradicted Mary fiercely. If you did, it was only a hysterical lump. Hysterics make lumps. There's nothing the matter with your horrid back. Nothing but hysterics. Turn over and let me look at it. She liked the word hysterics and felt somehow as if it had an effect on him. He was probably like herself and had never heard it before. Nurse, she commanded, come here and show me his back this minute. The nurse, Mrs. Medlock, and Martha had been standing huddled together near the door staring at her, their mouths half open. All three had gasped with fright more than once. The nurse came forward as if she were half afraid. Colin was heaving with great breathless sobs. Perhaps he... he won't let me, she hesitated in a low voice. Colin heard her, however, and he gasped out between two sobs. Show her. She'll see then. It was a poor thin back to look at when it was bad. 
every rib could be counted and every joint of the spine, though Mistress Mary did not count them as she bent over and examined them with a solemn, savage little face. She looked so sour and old-fashioned that the nurse turned her head aside to hide the twitching of her mouth. There was just a minute's silence, for even Colin tried to hold his breath while Mary looked up and down his spine, and down and up, as intently as if she had been the great doctor from London. "'There's not a single lump there,' she said at last. "'There's not a lump as big as a pin, except backbone lumps, and you can only feel them because you're thin. I've got backbone lumps myself, and they used to stick out as much as yours do, until I began to get fatter, and I am not fat enough yet to hide them. There's not a lump as big as a pin. If you ever say those again, I shall laugh. No one but Colin himself knew what effect those crossly spoken childish words had on him. If he had ever had anyone to talk to about his secret terrors, if he had ever dared to let himself ask questions, if he had had childish companions and not lain on his back in his huge closed house, breathing an atmosphere heavy with the fears of people who were most of them ignorant and tired of him, he would have found out that most of his fright and illness was created by himself. But he had lain and thought of himself and his aches and weariness for hours and days and months and years. And now that an angry, unsympathetic little girl insisted obstinately that he was not ill as he thought he was, he actually felt as if she might be speaking the truth. "'I didn't know,' ventured the nurse, "'that he thought he had a lump on his spine. "'His back is weak because he won't try to sit up. "'I could have told him there was no lump there.' "'Colin gulped and turned his face a little to look at her. "'Could you?' he said pathetically. "'Yes, sir.' "'There!' said Mary, and she gulped too.' Colin turned on his face again, and but for his long-drawn broken breaths, which were the dying down of his storm of sobbing, he lay still for a minute, though great tears streamed down his face and wet the pillow. Actually, the tears meant that a curious great relief had come to him. Presently, he turned and looked at the nurse again, and strangely enough, he was not like a Raja at all as he spoke to her. Do you think I could live to grow up? he said. The nurse was neither clever nor soft-hearted, but she could repeat some of the London doctor's words. You probably will if you would do what you are told to do, and not give way to your temper, and stay out a great deal in the fresh air. Colin's tantrum had passed, as he was weak and worn out with crying, and this perhaps made him feel gentle. He put out his hand a little toward Mary, and I am glad to say that, her own tantrum having passed, she was softened too, and met him halfway with her hand, so that it was a sort of making up. Uh, "'I'll go out with you, Mary,' he said. "'I shan't hate fresh air if we can find—' He remembered just in time to stop himself from saying, "'If we can find the secret garden,' and he ended, "'I should like to go out with you if Dickon will come and push my chair. I do so want to see Dickon and the fox and the crow.' The nurse remade the tumbled bed and shook and straightened the pillows. 
Then she made Colin a cup of beef tea and gave a cup to Mary, who really was very glad to get it after her excitement. Mrs. Medlock and Martha gladly slipped away, and after everything was neat and calm and in order, the nurse looked as if she would very gladly slip away also. She was a healthy young woman who resented being robbed of her sleep, and she yawned quite openly as she looked at Mary, who had pushed her big footstool close to the four-poster bed and was holding Colin's hand. "'You must go back and get your sleep out,' she said. "'He'll drop off after a while, if he's not too upset. "'Then I'll lie down myself in the next room. "'Would you like me to sing you that song I learned from my ayah?' "'Mary whispered to Colin. "'His hand pulled hers gently, "'and he turned his tired eyes on her appealingly. "'Oh, yes,' he answered. "'It's such a soft song. "'I shall go to sleep in a minute.' "'I will put him to sleep,' Mary said to the yawning nurse. "'You can go if you like.' "'Well,' said the nurse, with an attempt at reluctance, "'if he doesn't go to sleep in half an hour, you must call me.' "'Very well,' answered Mary. "'The nurse was out of the room in a minute, "'and as soon as she was gone, Colin pulled Mary's hand again. "'I almost told,' he said, "'but I stopped myself in time.' I won't talk, and I'll go to sleep. But you said you had a whole lot of nice things to tell me. Have you... Do you think you have found out anything at all about the way into the secret garden? Mary looked at his poor little tired face and swollen eyes, and her heart relented. Yes, she answered. I think I have. And if you will go to sleep, I will tell you tomorrow. His hand quite trembled. Oh, Mary, he said. Oh, Mary, if I could get into it, I think I should live to grow up. Do you suppose that instead of singing the Aya song, you could just tell me softly as you did that first day what you imagine it looks like inside? I am sure it will make me go to sleep. Yes, answered Mary. Shut your eyes. He closed his eyes and lay quite still, and she held his hand and began to speak very slowly and in a very low voice. I think it has been left alone so long that it has grown all into a lovely tangle. I think the roses have climbed and climbed and climbed until they hang from the branches and walls and creep over the ground, almost like a strange grey mist. Some of them have died but many are alive, and when the summer comes there will be curtains and fountains of roses. I think the ground is full of daffodils and snowdrops and lilies and iris working their way out of the dark. Now that spring has begun, perhaps, perhaps... The soft drone of her voice was making him stiller and stiller, and she saw it and went on. Perhaps they are coming up through the grass. Perhaps there are clusters of purple crocuses and gold ones, even now. Perhaps the leaves are beginning to break out and uncurl. And perhaps the grey is changing, and a grey gauze veil is creeping, and creeping over everything. 
and the birds are coming to look at it, because it is so safe and still, and perhaps, 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 very softly and slowly indeed, the robin has found a mate and is building a nest, and Colin was asleep. Chapter 18 Thou mun have waste no time. Of course, Mary did not waken early the next morning. She slept late because she was tired, and when Martha brought her breakfast and told her that though Colin was quite still, he was ill and feverish, as he always was after he had worn himself out in a fit of crying. Mary ate her breakfast slowly as she listened. He says he wishes thou would please go and see him as soon as thou can, Martha said. It's queer what a fancy he's took to thee. Thou did give it him last night for sure, didn't thou? Nobody else would have dared to do it. Eh, poor lad, he's been spoiled to salt won't save him. Mother says as two worst things as can happen to a child is never to have his own way or always to have it. She doesn't know which is the worst. Thou was in a fine temper thyself too. But he says to me when I went into his room, Please ask Miss Mary if she'll come and talk to me. Thank God he'd say and please. Where you go, miss? I'll run and see Dickon first, said Mary. No, I'll go and see Colin first and tell him. I know what I'll tell him. With a sudden inspiration. She had her hat on when she appeared in Colin's room, and for a second he looked disappointed. He was in bed. His face was pitifully white, and there were dark circles round his eyes. "'I'm glad you came,' he said. "'My head aches, and I ache all over because I'm so tired. Are you going somewhere?' Mary went and leaned against his bed. "'I won't be long,' she said. "'I'm going to Ticken.' But I'll come back. Colin, it's... it's something about the garden. His whole face brightened, and a little colour came into it. Oh, is it? he cried out. I dreamt about it all night. I heard you say something about grey changing into green, and I dreamed I was standing in a place all filled with trembling little green leaves, and there were birds on nests everywhere, and they looked so soft and still. I'll not and think about it until you come back. In five minutes, Mary was with Ticken in their garden. The fox and the crow were with him again, and this time he had brought two tame squirrels. I came over on the pony this morning, he said. Eh, he is a good little chap. Jump is. I brought these two in my pockets. This here one's called Nuts, and this other one's called Shell. When he said Nuts, one squirrel leaped onto his right shoulder, and when he said shell, the other one leaped onto his left shoulder. When they sat down on the grass with Captain Curls at their feet, Soot solemnly listened on a tree, a nut and shell nosing about close to them. It seemed to Mary that it would be scarcely bearable to leave such delightfulness, but when she began to tell her story, somehow the look in Dickens' funny face gradually changed her mind. She could see he felt sorrier for Colin than she did. He looked up at the sky and all about him. 
Just listen to them birds. The world seems full of them, all whistling and piping, he said. Look at them darting about and harking at them calling to each other. Come springtime, seems like if all the world's calling. The leaves is uncurling as you can see them, and my word, the nice smells there is about, sniffing with his happy turned-up nose. And that poor lad lying shut up and seeing so little that he gets to thinking of things as sets him screaming. Eh, my, we mum get him out here. We mum get him watching and listening and sniffing up the air and get him and just soaked through with sunshine. And we mutton lose no time about it. When he was interested, he often spoke quite broad Yorkshire. Though at other times he tried to modify his dialect so that Mary could better understand, but she loved his broad Yorkshire and had in fact been trying to learn to speak it herself, so she spoke a little now. Ah, that we mum," she said, which meant yes, indeed we must. I'll tell thee what us'll do first," she proceeded. And Dickon grinned because when the little wench tried to twist her tongue into speaking Yorkshire, it amused him very much. He's took a greatly fancy to thee. He wants to see thee, and he wants to see Soot and Captain. When I go back to the house and talk to him, I'll ask him if thou cannot come and see him tomorrow morning, and bring that creatures with thee, and then in a bit. When there's more leaves out, and happen a bud or two, we'll get him to come, and thou shalt push him in his chair, and we'll bring him here and show him everything. When she stopped, she was quite proud of herself. She had never made a long speech in Yorkshire before, and she had remembered very well. Thou mum took a bit of Yorkshire like that to Master Colin, Dickon chuckled. That'll make him laugh, and there's not as good for ill folk as laughter is. Mother says she believes as half hours good laugh every morning could cure a chap as was making ready for typhus fever. I'm going to talk Yorkshire to him this very day," said Mary, chuckling herself. The garden had reached the time when every day and every night it seemed as if magicians were passing through it, drawing loveliness out of the earth and the boughs with wands. It was hard to go away and leave it all, particularly as Nut had actually crept onto her dress, and Shell had scrambled down the trunk of the apple tree they sat under, and stayed there looking at her with inquiring eyes. But she went back to the house, and when she sat down close to Colin's bed, he began to sniff as Dickon did, though not in such an experienced way. You smell like flowers, and, and fresh things. He cried out quite joyously, "What is it you smell of? It's cool and warm and sweet, all at the same time." "It's the wind from the moor," said Mary. "It comes out sitting on the grass under a tree with Dickon and with Captain and with Soot and Not and Shell. It's the springtime and out of doors and sunshine. It smells so greatly." She said it as broadly as she could. And you do not know how broadly Yorkshire sounds until you have heard someone speak it. Colin began to laugh. <laughs> "What are you doing?" he said. "I never heard you talk like that before. How funny it sounds!" "I'm giving thee a bit to Yorkshire," answered Mary triumphantly. 
I cannot talk as greatly as Dickon and Martha, but thou sees I can shape a bit. Does thou understand a bit of Yorkshire when thou hears it? And thou a Yorkshire lad thyself, bred and born. Eh, I wonder thou art not ashamed of our face. And then she began to laugh too, and they both laughed until they could not stop themselves, and they laughed until the room echoed, and Mrs. Medlock, opening the door to come in, drew back into the corridor, and stood listening amazed. Well, upon thy word, she said, speaking rather broad Yorkshire herself, because there was no one to hear her, and she was so astonished. Whoever held the lock? Whoever on earth would have thought it? There was so much to talk about. It seems as if Colin could never hear enough of Dickon and Captain and Sit and Nut and Show and the pony whose name was Jump. Mary had run round into the wood with Dickon to see Jump. He was a tiny little shaggy moor pony with thick locks hanging over his eyes and with a pretty face and a nuzzling velvet nose. He was rather thin with living on moor grass, but he was as tough and wiry as if the muscle on his little legs had been made of steel springs. He had lifted his head and whinnied softly the moment he saw Dickon, and he had trotted up to him and put his head across his shoulder, and then Dickon had talked into his ear, and Jump had talked back in odd little whinnies and puffs and snorts. Dickon had made him give Mary his small front hoof and kiss her on her cheek with his velvet muzzle. Does he really understand everything Dickon says? Colin asked. It seems as if he does, answered Mary. Dickon says anything will understand you if you're friends with it for sure, but you have no friends for sure. Colin lay quiet a little while, and his strange grey eyes seemed to be staring at the wall. But Mary saw what he was thinking. I wish I was friends with things, he said at last, but I'm not. I never had anything to be friends with, and I can't bear people. Can't you bear me? asked Mary. Yes, I can, he answered. It's funny, but I even like you. Ben Weatherstaff said I was like him, said Mary. He said he'd warned we both got the same nasty tempers. I think you are like him too. We are all three alike, you and I and Ben Weatherstaff. He said that we are neither of us much to look at, and we were as sour as we looked. But I don't feel as sour as I used to be before I knew the robin and Dickon. Did you feel as if you hated people? Yes, answered Mary, without any affectation. I should have detested you if I had seen you before I saw the robin and Dickon. Colin put out his thin hand and touched her. Mary, he said, I wish I hadn't said what I did about sending Dickon away. I hated you when you said he was like an angel, and I laughed at you. But perhaps he is. Well, it was rather funny to say it, she admitted frankly, because his nose does turn up, and he has a big mouth, and his clothes have patches all over them. And he talks broad Yorkshire. But, but if an angel did come to Yorkshire and live on the moor, if there was a Yorkshire angel, I believe he'd understand the green things and know how to make them grow, and he would know how to talk to the wild creatures as Dickon does, and they'd know he was friends for sure. 
I shouldn't mind Dickon looking at me, said Colin. I want to see him. I'm glad he said that, answered Mary, because, because, quite suddenly it came into her mind that this was the minute to tell him. Colin knew something new was coming. Because what? he cried eagerly. Mary was so anxious that she got up from her stool and came to him and caught hold of both his hands. Can I trust you? I trusted Dickon because birds trusted him. Can I trust you? For sure? For sure? she implored. Her face was so solemn that he almost whispered his answer. Yes, yes! Well, Dickon will come to see you tomorrow morning, and he'll bring his creatures with him. Oh, oh! Colin cried out in delight. But that's not all. Mary went on, almost pale with solemn excitement. The rest is better. There is a door into the garden. I found it. It is under the ivy on the wall. If he had been a strong, healthy boy, Colin would probably have shouted, Hooray! 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 But he was weak and rather hysterical. His eyes grew bigger and bigger, and he gasped for breath. Oh, Mary! He cried out with a half sob. Shall I see it? Shall I get into it? Shall I live to get into it? And he clutched her hands and dragged her toward him. Of course you'll see it, snapped Mary indignantly. Of course you'll live to get into it. Don't be silly. And she was so unhysterical and natural and childish that she brought him to his senses, and he began to laugh at himself. And a few minutes afterward, she was sitting on her stool again, telling him not what she imagined the secret garden to be like, but what it really was. And Colin's aches and tiredness were forgotten, and he was listening enraptured. It's just what you thought it would be he said at last. It sounds just as if you had really seen it. You know I said that when you told me first. Mary hesitated about two minutes, and then boldly spoke the truth. I had seen it, and I had been in, she said. I found the key and got in weeks ago, but I daren't tell you. I daren't, because I was so afraid I couldn't trust you. For sure, Chapter 19. It has come. Of course, Dr. Craven had been sent for the morning after Colin had had his tantrum. He was always sent for at once when such a thing occurred, and he always found, when he arrived, a white shaken boy lying on his bed, sulky and still so hysterical that he was ready to break into fresh sobbing at the least word. In fact, Dr. Craven dreaded and detested the difficulties of these visits. On this occasion, he was away from Misselwaite Manor until afternoon. How is he? he asked Mrs. Medlock. He will break a blood vessel in one of those fits some day. The boy is half insane with hysteria and self-indulgence. Well, sir, answered Mrs. Medlock, you'll scarcely believe your eyes when you see him. That plain, sour-faced child that's almost as bad as himself has just bewitched him. How she's done it, there's no telling. 
The Lord knows she's nothing to look at, and you scarcely ever hear her speak, but she did what none of us dared do. She just flew at him like a little cat last night, and stamped her feet and ordered him to stop screaming, and somehow she startled him so that he did actually stop. On this afternoon. Well, just come up and see, sir. It's past crediting. The scene which Dr. Craven beheld when he entered the patient's room was indeed rather astonishing to him. As Mrs. Medlock opened the door, he heard laughing and chattering. Colin was on his sofa in his dressing gown, and he was sitting up quite straight, looking at a picture in one of his garden books, and talking to the plain child, who at that moment could scarcely be called plain at all, because her face was so glowing with enjoyment. Those long spires of blue ones. We'll have a lot of those, Colin was announcing. They're called delphiniums. Dickens says they're larkspurs made big and grand, cried Mistress Mary. There are clumps there already. Then they saw Dr. Craven and stopped. Mary became quite still, and Colin looked fretful. I am sorry to hear you were ill last night, my boy, Dr. Craven said, a trifle nervously. He was rather a nervous man. I'm better now, much better. Colin answered, rather like a rajah. I'm going out in my chair in a day or two, if it is fine. I want some fresh air. Dr. Craven sat down by him and felt his pulse and looked at him curiously. It must be a very fine day, he said, and you must be very careful not to tire yourself. Fresh air won't tire me, said the young rajah. As there had been occasions when this same young gentleman had shrieked aloud with rage and had insisted that fresh air would give him cold and kill him, it is not to be wondered at that his doctor felt somewhat startled. I thought you did not like fresh air, he said. I don't when I am by myself, replied the Rajah, but my cousin is going out with me. And the nurse, of course, suggested Dr. Craven. No. I will not have the nurse. So magnificently that Mary could not help remembering how the young native prince had looked with his diamonds and emeralds and pearls stuck all over him, and the great rubies on the small dark hand he had waved to command his servants to approach with salaams and receive his orders. My cousin knows how to take care of me. I am always better when she is with me. She made me better last night. A very strong boy, I know, will push my carriage. Dr. Craven felt rather alarmed. If this tiresome, hysterical boy should chance to get well, he himself would lose all chance of inheriting Mizzlethwaite. But he was not an unscrupulous man, though he was a weak one, and he did not intend to let him run into actual danger. He must be a strong boy and a steady boy, he said and I must know something about him. Who is he? What is his name? It's Dickon, Mary spoke up suddenly. She felt somehow that everybody who knew the moor must know Dickon. And she was right, too. She saw that in a moment Dr. Craven's serious face relaxed into a relieved smile. Oh, Dickon, he said. If it is Dickon, you will be safe enough. 
He's as strong as a moor pony's, Dickon. And he's trusty, said Mary. He's the trustiest lad of Yorkshire. She had been talking Yorkshire to Colin, and she forgot herself. Did Dickon teach you that? asked Dr. Craven, laughing outright. I'm learning it as if it was French, said Mary rather coldly. It's like a native dialect in India. Very clever people try to learn them. I like it, and so does Colin. Well, well, he said. If it amuses you, perhaps it won't do you any harm. Did you take your bromide last night, Colin? No, Colin answered. I wouldn't take it at first, and after Mary made me quiet, she talked me to sleep, in a low voice, about the spring creeping into a garden. That sounds soothing, said Dr. Craven, more perplexed than ever, and glancing sideways at Mistress Mary, sitting on her stool and looking down silently at the carpet. You are evidently better, but you must remember— I don't want to remember! interrupted the Rajah, appearing again. When I lie by myself and remember, I begin to have pains everywhere, and I think of things that make me begin to scream, because I hate them so. If there was a doctor anywhere who could make you forget you were ill instead of remembering it, I would have him brought here. And he waved a thin hand, which ought really to have been covered with royal signet rings made of rubies. It is because my cousin makes me forget that she makes me better. Dr. Craven had never made such a short stay after a tantrum. Usually he was obliged to remain a very long time and do a great many things. This afternoon he did not give any medicine or leave any new orders, and he was spared any disagreeable scenes. When he went downstairs, he looked very thoughtful, and when he talked to Mrs. Medlock in the library, she felt that he was a much puzzled man. "'Well, sir,' she ventured, "'could you have believed it?' "'It is certainly a new state of affairs,' said the doctor, "'and there's no denying it is better than the old one.' "'I believe Susan Sowerby's right. I do that,' said Mrs. Medlock." I stopped in her cottage on my way to Thwaite yesterday and had a bit of talk with her. And she says to me, Well, Sarah Ann, she mayn't be a good child, and she mayn't be a pretty one, but she's a child, and children needs children. We went to school together, Susan Sowerby and me. She's the best sick nurse I know, said Dr. Craven. When I find her in a cottage, I know the chances are that I shall save my patient. Mrs. Medlock smiled. She was fond of Susan Sowerby. She's got away with her, has Susan, she went on quite volubly. I've been thinking all morning of one thing she said yesterday. She says, once when I was giving the children a bit of preach after they had been fighting, I says to a all, when I was at school, my geography as the world was shaped like an orange, and I found out before I was ten that the whole orange doesn't belong to nobody. No one owns more than his bit of a quarter, and there's times it seems like there's not enough quarters to go round. But don't you, none of you, think as you own the whole orange, or you'll find out you're mistaken, and you won't find it out without the hard knocks. What children learns from children, she says, is that there's no sense in grappling, and the whole orange, peel and all. If you do, you'll likely not get even the pips. 
and them's too bitter to eat. She's a shrewd woman, said Dr. Craven, putting on his coat. Well, she's got a way of saying things, ended Mrs. Medlock, much pleased. Sometimes I've said to her, eh, Susan, if you was a different woman and didn't talk so much broad Yorkshire, I've seen the times when I should have said you was clever. That night, Colin slept without once awakening, and when he opened his eyes in the morning, he lay still and smiled without knowing it. Smiled because he felt so curiously comfortable. It was actually nice to be awake, and he turned over and stretched his limbs luxuriously. He felt as if tight strings which had held him had loosened themselves and let him go. He did not know that Dr. Craven would have said that his nerves had relaxed and rested themselves. Instead of lying and staring at the wall and wishing he had not awakened, his mind was full of the plans he and Mary had made yesterday, of the pictures of the garden and of Dickon and his wild creatures. It was so nice to have things to think about. And he had not been awake more than ten minutes when he heard feet running along the corridor and Mary was at the door. The next minute she was in the room and had run across to his bed, bringing with her a waft of fresh air full of the scent of the morning. "'You've been out! You've been out! There's that nice smell of leaves!' he cried. She had been running and her hair was loose and blown, and she was bright with the air and pink-cheeked, though he could not see it. "'It's so beautiful!' she said a little breathless with her speed. You never saw anything so beautiful. It has come. I thought it had come that other morning, but it was only coming. It is here now. It has come, the spring. Dickens says so. Has it? cried Colin, and though he really knew nothing about it, he felt his heart beat. He actually sat up in bed. Open the window, he added, laughing half with joyful excitement and half at his own fancy. Perhaps we may hear golden trumpets. And though he laughed, Mary was at the window in a moment, and in a moment more it was opened wide, and freshness and softness and sense and bird's song were pouring through. That's fresh air, she said. Lie on your back and draw in long breaths of it. That's what Dickon does when he's lying on the moor. He says he feels it in his veins, and it makes him strong, and he feels as if he can live forever and ever. Breathe it, and breathe it. She was only repeating what Dickon had told her, but she caught Colin's fancy. Forever and ever. Does it make him feel like that? He said, and he did as she told him drawing in long, deep breaths over and over again until he felt that something quite new and delightful was happening to him. Mary was at his bedside again. "'Things are crowding up out of the earth,' she ran in a hurry, "'and there are flowers uncurling and buds on everything, "'and the green veil has covered nearly all of the grey, "'and the birds are in such a hurry about their nests "'for fear that they may be too late, "'that some of them are even fighting for places in the secret garden. "'And the rose bushes look as wick as wick can be, "'and there are primroses in the lanes and woods, "'and the seeds we planted are up, "'and Dickon has brought the fox.' and the crow, and the squirrels, and a newborn lamb. And then she paused for breath. <laughs>
The newborn lamb Dickon had found three days before, lying by its dead mother among the gorse bushes on the moor. It was not the first motherless lamb he had found, and he knew what to do with it. He had taken it to the cottage wrapped in his jacket, and he had let it lie near the fire, and had fed it with warm milk. It was a soft thing, with a darling silly baby face, and legs rather long for its body. Dickon had carried it over the moor in his arms, and its feeding bottle was in his pocket with a squirrel. And when Murray had sat under a tree with its limp warmness huddled on her lap, she had felt as if she were too full of strange joy to speak. A lamb! A lamb! A living lamb who lay on your lap like a baby! She was describing it with great joy, and Colin was listening and drawing in long breaths of air when the nurse entered. She started a little at the sight of the open window. She had sat stifling in the room many a warm day, because her patient was sure that open windows gave people cold. "'Are you sure you are not chilly, Master Colin?' she inquired. "'No,' was the answer. "'I am breathing long breaths of fresh air. It makes you strong. I am going to get up to the sofa for breakfast. My cousin will have breakfast with me.' The nurse went away, concealing a smile, to give the order for two breakfasts. She found the servants' hall a more amusing place than the invalid's chamber, and just now everybody wanted to hear the news from upstairs. There was a great deal of joking about the unpopular young recluse who, as the cook said, had found his master, and good for him. The servants' hall had been very tired of the tantrums, and the butler, who was a man with a family, had more than once expressed his opinion that the invalid would be all the better for a good hiding. When Colin was on his sofa, and the breakfast for two was put upon the table, he made an announcement to the nurse in his most Rajah-like manner. "'A boy, a fox, and a crow, and two squirrels, and a newborn lamb are coming to see me this morning.' "'I want them brought upstairs as soon as they come,' he said. "'You are not to begin playing with the animals in this servants' hall and keep them there. "'I want them here.' "'The nurse gave a slight gasp as she tried to conceal it with a cough. "'Yes, sir,' she answered. "'I'll tell you what you can do,' added Colin, waving his hand. "'You can tell Martha to bring them here. "'The boy is Martha's brother. "'His name is Dickon, and he's an animal charmer.' "'I hope the animals won't bite, Master Colin,' said the nurse. "'I told you he was a charmer,' said Colin astutely. "'Charmer's animals never bite.' "'There are snake charmers in India,' said Mary, "'and they can put their snakes' heads in their mouths.' "'Goodness!' shuddered the nurse. "'They ate their breakfast with the morning air pouring in upon them.' Colin's breakfast was a very good one, and Mary watched him with serious interest. "'You will begin to get fatter, just as I did,' she said. "'I never wanted my breakfast when I was in India, and now I always want it.' "'I want mine this morning,' said Colin. "'Perhaps it was fresh air. "'When do you think Dickon will come?' "'He was not long in coming. "'In about ten minutes,' Mary held up her hand. "'Listen!' she said. Did you hear a call? Colin listened and heard it. The oddest sound in the world to hear inside a house. A horse, caw, caw Yes, he answered. That's it, 
said Mary. Listen again. Do you hear a bleat? A tiny one? Oh, yes, cried Colin, quite flushing. That's the newborn lamb, said Mary. He's coming. Dickens' moorland boots were thick and clumsy, and though he tried to walk quietly, they made a clumping sound as he walked through the long corridors. Mary and Colin heard him marching, marching, until he passed through the tapestry door on the soft carpet of Colin's own passage. If you please, sir, announced Martha, opening the door, if you please, sir, he is Dickon and his creatures. Dickon came in smiling his nicest wide smile. The newborn lamb was in his arms, and the little red fox trotted by his side. Nut sat on his left shoulder and sit on his right, and Shell's head and paws peeped out of his coat pocket. Colin slowly sat up and stared and stared, as he had stared when he first saw Mary. But this was a stare of wonder and delight. The truth was that in spite of all he had heard, he had not in the least understood what this boy would be like, and that his fox and his crow and his squirrels and his lamb were so near to him in his friendliness that they seemed almost to be part of himself. Colin had never talked to a boy in his life, and he was so overwhelmed by his own pleasure and curiosity that he did not even think of speaking. But Dickon did not feel the least shy or awkward. He had not felt embarrassed because the crow had not known his language and had only stared and had not spoken to him the first time they met. Creatures were always like that until they found out about you. He walked over to Colin's sofa and put the newborn lamb quietly on his lap, and immediately the little creature turned to the warm velvet dressing gown and began to nuzzle and nuzzle into his folds and butt its tight curled head with soft impatience against his side. Of course, no boy could have helped speaking then. What is it doing? cried Colin. What does it want? It wants its mother, said Dickon, smiling more and more. I brought it to thee a bit hungry, because I know thou'd like to see it feed. He knelt down by the sofa and took a feeding bottle from his pocket. Come on, little one, he said, turning the small woolly white head with a gentle brown hand. This is what thou's after. Thou'll get more out of this than thou wilt of six velvet coats. There now. And he pushed the rubber tip of the bottle into the nuzzling mouth, and the lamb began to suck it with ravenous ecstasy. After that, there was no wondering what to say. By the time the lamb fell asleep, questions poured forth, and Dickon answered them all. He told them how he had found the lamb just as the sun was rising three mornings ago. He had been standing on the moor, listening to a skylark, and watching him swing higher and higher into the sky, until he was only a speck in the heights of blue. I'd almost lost him but for his song, and I was wondering how a chap would hear it when it seemed as if he'd get out to the world in a minute. And just then, I heard something else far off among the gorse bushes. It was a weak bleating, and I knew it was a new lamb, and was hungry, and I knowed it wouldn't be hungry if it had lost its mother somehow, so I'd set off searching. Eh, I did have a look for it. I went in and among the gorse bushes, and round and round, and I almost seemed to take the wrong turning. But at last I seed a bit of white by a rock, and top of the moor, and I climbed up, and found the little one half dead.
wet, cold and clammy. While he talked, Sit flew solemnly in and out of the open window and called remarks about the scenery while Nuts and Shell made excursions into the big trees outside and ran up and down trunks and explored branches. Captain curled up near Dickon, who sat on the hearthrug from preference. They looked at the pictures in the gardening books, and Dickon knew all the flowers by their country names and knew exactly which ones were already growing in a secret garden. I couldn't say thy name there, he said, pointing to one under which was written Archalasia, but Joss calls that a columbine, and that there one is a snapdragon, and they both grow wild in hedges. But there's garden ones, and there's bigger and grander. There's some big clumps of columbine in the garden. They'll look like a bed of blue and white butterflies fluttering when they're out. I'm going to see them, cried Colin. I am going to see them. Aye, that the mum, said Mary quite seriously. And I mana lose no time about it. Chapter 20 I shall live forever and ever and ever. But they were obliged to wait more than a week because first there came some very windy days and then Colin was threatened with a cold which two things happening one after the other would no doubt have thrown him into a rage but there was so much careful and mysterious planning to do and almost every day Dickon came in if only for a few minutes to talk about what was happening on the moor and in the lanes and hedges and on the borders of streams the things he had to tell about otters and badgers and water rats houses not to mention birds' nests and field mice and our burrows, were enough to make you almost tremble with excitement when you heard all the intimate details from an animal charmer and realised with what thrilling eagerness and anxiety the whole busy underworld was working. They're same as us, said Dickon, only they have to build their homes every year, and it keeps them so busy they fair scuffle to get them done. The most absorbing thing, however, was the preparations to be made before Cullen could be transported with sufficient secrecy to the garden. No one must see the chair carriage, and Dickon and Mary, after they turned a certain corner of the shrubbery and entered upon the walk outside the ivied walls. As each day passed, Colin had become more and more fixed in his feeling that the mystery surrounding the garden was one of its greatest charms. Nothing must spoil that. No one must ever suspect that they had a secret. People must think that he was simply going out with Mary and Dickon because he liked them and did not object to their looking at him. They had long and quite delightful talks about their route. They would go up this path and down that one and cross the other and go round among the fountain flower beds as if they were looking at the bedding out plants the head gardener, Mr. Roach, had been having arranged. That would seem such a rational thing to do that no one would think it at all mysterious. They would turn to the shrubbery walks and lose themselves until they came to the long walls. It was almost as serious and elaborately thought out as the plans of march made by great generals in times of war. Rumours of the new and curious things which were occurring in the invalid's apartments had, of course, filtered through the servants' hall into the stable-yards and out among the gardeners. But notwithstanding this, 
Mr. Roach was startled one day when he received orders from Master Collins' room to the effect that he must report himself in the apartment no outsider had ever seen, as the invalid himself decided to speak to him. Well, well, he said to himself as he hurriedly changed his coat. What's to do now? His Royal Highness that wasn't to be looked at calling up a man he's never set eyes on. Mr. Roach was not without curiosity. He had never caught a glimpse of the boy, and he had heard a dozen exaggerated stories about his uncanny looks and ways and his insane tempers. The thing he had heard oftenest was that he might die at any moment, and there had been numerous fanciful descriptions of a humped back and helpless limbs given by people who had never seen him. Things are changing in this house, Mr. Roach said Mrs. Medlock, as she led him up the back staircase to the corridor, onto which opened the hitherto mysterious chamber. "'Let's hope they're changing for the better, Mrs. Medlock,' he answered. "'They couldn't well change for the worse,' she continued. "'And queer as it is, there's them as finds their duties made a lot easier to stand up under. Don't you be surprised, Mr. Roach, if you find yourself in the middle of a menagerie, and Martha Sowerby's dickin more at home than you and me could ever be. There really was a sort of magic about Dickon, as Mary always privately believed. When Mr. Roach heard his name, he smiled quite leniently. He'd be at home in Buckingham Palace, or at the bottom of a coal mine, he said, and yet it's not impudence either. He's just fine, is that lad. It was perhaps well he had been prepared, or he might have been startled. When the bedroom door was opened, a large crow, which seemed quite at home perched on the high back of a carven chair, announced the entrance of a visitor by saying, Caw! Caw! quite loudly. In spite of Mrs. Medlock's warning, Mr. Roach only just escaped being sufficiently undignified to jump backward. The young Rajah was neither in bed nor on his sofa. He was sitting in an armchair, and a young lamb was standing by him, shaking its tail in feeding lamb fashion as Dickon knelt, giving it milk from its bottle. A squirrel was perched on Dickon's bent back, attentively nibbling a nut. The little girl from India was sitting on a big footstool, looking on. "'Here is Mr. Roach, Master Colin,' said Mrs. Medlock. The young Rajah turned and looked his servitor over. At least that was what his head gardener felt happened. "'Oh, you are Roach, are you?' he said. "'I sent for you to give you some very important orders.' "'Very good, sir,' answered Roach, wondering if he was to receive instructions to fell all the oaks in the park or to transform the orchards into water gardens. "'I am going out in my chair this afternoon,' said Colin. If the fresh air agrees with me, I may go out every day. When I go, none of the gardeners are to be anywhere near the long walk by the garden walls. No one is to be there. I shall go out about two o'clock, and everyone must keep away until I send word that they may go back to their work. Very good, sir, replied Mr. Roach, much relieved to hear that the oaks might remain and that the orchards were safe. Mary, said Colin, turning to her, what is that thing you say in India when you have finished talking and want people to go? You say, you have my permission to go, answered Mary. The Rajah waved his hand. 
You have my permission to go, Roach, he said. But remember, this is very important. Caw! Caw! remarked the crow hoarsely, but not impolitely. Very good, sir. Thank you, sir, said Mr. Roach, and Mrs. Medlock took him out of the room. Outside in the corridor, being a rather good-natured man, he smiled until he almost laughed. My word, he said. He's got a fine lordly weight with him, hasn't he? You'd think he was a whole royal family rolled into one, Prince Consort and all. Eh, protested Mrs. Medlock. We've had to let him trample all over every one of us ever since he had feet, and he thinks that's what folks was born for. Perhaps he'll grow out of it, if he lives, suggested Mr. Roach. Well, there's one thing pretty sure, said Mrs. Medlock. If he does live, and that Indian child stays here, I'll warrant she teaches him that the whole orange does not belong to him, as Susan Sowerby says, and he'll be likely to find out the size of his own quarter. Inside the room, Colin was leaning back on his cushions. It's all safe now, he said, and this afternoon I shall see it. This afternoon I shall be in it. Dickon went back to the garden with his creatures, and Mary stayed with Colin. She did not think he looked tired, but he was very quiet before their lunch came, and he was quiet while they were eating it. She wondered why, and asked him about it. "'What big eyes you've got, Colin,' she said. "'When you are thinking, they get as big as saucers. What are you thinking about now?' "'I can't help thinking about what you will look like,' he answered. The garden? asked Mary. The springtime, he said. I was thinking that I've really never seen it before. I scarcely ever went out, and when I did go, I never looked at it. I didn't even think about it. I never saw it in India because there weren't any, said Mary. Shut in and morbid as life had been, Colin had more imagination than she had, and at least he had spent a good deal of time looking at wonderful books and pictures. That morning when you ran in and said, It's come, it's come, you made me feel quite queer. It sounded as if things were coming with a great procession and big bursts and wafts of music. I've a picture liked in one of my books. Crowds of lovely people and children with garlands and branches with blossoms on them. Everyone laughing and dancing and crowding and playing on pipes. That was why I said, perhaps we shall hear golden trumpets. I told you to throw open the window. How funny, said Mary. That's really just what it feels like. And if all the flowers and leaves and green things and birds and wild creatures dance past at once, what a crowd it would be! I'm sure they'd dance and sing and flute, and that would be wafts of music. They both laughed, but it was not because the idea was laughable, but because they both so liked it. A little later, the nurse made Colin ready. She noticed that instead of lying like a log while his clothes were put on, he sat up and made some efforts to help himself, and he talked and laughed with Mary all the time. This is one of his good days, sir, she said to Dr. Craven, who dropped in to inspect him. He's in such good spirits that it makes him stronger. I'll call in again later in the afternoon, after he has come in, said Dr. Craven. 
I must see how the going out agrees with him. I wish, in a very low voice, that he would let you go with him. I'd rather give up the case this moment, sir, than even stay here while it's suggested, answered the nurse, with sudden firmness. I hadn't really decided to suggest it, said the doctor, with his slight nervousness. We'll try the experiment. Dickens a lad I'd trust with a newborn child. The strongest footman in the house carried Colin downstairs and put him in his wheeled chair near which Dickon waited outside. After the man-servant had arranged his rugs and cushions, the Rajah waved his hand to him and to the nurse. "'You have my permission to go,' he said, and they both disappeared quickly, and it must be confessed, giggled when they were safely inside the house. Dickon began to push the wheeled chair slowly and steadily. Mistress Mary walked beside it, and Colin leaned back and lifted his face to the sky. The arch of it looked very high, and the small snowy clouds seemed like white birds floated on outspread wings below its crystal blueness. The wind swept in soft big breaths down the moor, and was strange with a wild clear-scented sweetness. Colin kept lifting his thin chest to draw it in, and his big eyes looked as if it were they which were listening, listening, instead of his ears. There are so many sounds of singing and humming and calling out, he said. What is that scent that puffs of wind bring? It's gorse on the moor that's up and out, answered Dickon. Eh, the bees are at it wonderful today. Not a human creature was to be caught sight of in the paths they took. In fact, every gardener or gardener's lad had been witched away. But they wound in and out around the shrubbery and out and round the fountain beds, following their carefully planned route for the mere mysterious pleasure of it. But when at last they turned into the long walk by the ivied walls, the excited sense of an approaching thrill made them, for some curious reason they could not have explained, begin to speak in whispers. "'This is it!' breathed Mary. "'This is where I used to walk up and down and wonder and wonder.' "'Is it?' cried Colin, and his eyes began to search the ivy with eager curiousness. "'But I can see nothing,' he whispered. "'There is no door.' "'That's what I thought,' said Mary. Then there was a lovely breathless silence, and the chair wheeled on. "'That is the garden where Ben Weatherstaff works,' said Mary. "'Is it?' said Colin. A few yards away, and Mary whispered again. "'This is where the robin flew over the wall,' she said. "'Is it?' cried Colin. "'Oh, I wish he'd come again.' "'And that,' said Mary, with a solemn delight, "'pointing under a big lilac bush, "'is where he perched on the little heap of earth "'and showed me the key.' "'Then Colin sat up. "'Where? Where? There?' he cried, "'and his eyes were as big as the wolves in Red Riding Hood, when Red Riding Hood felt called upon to remark on them. Dickon stood still, and the wheelchair stopped. And this, said Mary, stepping onto the bed close to the ivy, is where I went to talk to him when he chirped at me from the top of the wall. And this is the ivy the wind blew back. And she took hold of the hanging green curtain. Oh, is it? Is it? gasped Colin. "'And here is the handle, and here is the door.' 
Dickon, push him in. Push him in quickly. And Dickon did it with one strong, steady, splendid push. But Colin had actually dropped back against his cushions, even though he gasped with delight, and he had covered his eyes with his hands and held him there, shutting out everything, until they were inside and the chair stopped, as if by magic, and the door was closed. Not until then did he take them away and look round and round and round, as Dickon and Mary had done and over walls and earth and trees and swinging sprays and tendrils the fair green veil of tender leaves had crept and in the grass under the trees and the grey urns and the alcoves and here and there everywhere were touches of splashes and gold and purple and white and the trees were showing pink and snow above his head and there were fluttering of wings and faint sweet pipes and humming and scents and scents and the sun fell warm upon his face like a hand with a lovely touch. And in wonder, Murray and Dickon stood and stared at him. He looked so strange and different because a pink glow of colour had actually crept all over him. Ivory face and neck and hands and all. I shall get well! I shall get well! he cried out. Murray! Dickon! I shall get well! And I shall live for ever, and ever, and ever. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate everyone who listens and everyone who shares the podcast. Uh, yeah, tons of bonus content here. Be sure to check out Nikki's links. They're going to be in the show notes down below. Check out the other work that she is doing and send some love her way. Thank you so much uh, to Nikki again for just her generosity. I mean, she put so much time and effort into this and it's just, it's coming out great. So I hope you guys are enjoying it, enjoying all the bonus content. Uh, like I said, we'll be back on Sunday with our normally scheduled episode of Emma. So stay tuned for that that and yeah in the meantime enjoy all this awesomeness thanks for listening guys remember to share the show with somebody that you know who might enjoy a free audiobook